America, everyone, uh, sup? Uh, this is another episode of Real Sunkara Hours. Real Sunkara Hours. Follow us at Sunkara Hours. Um, support independent black leftist media uh, because we're going to keep giving you the real shit. Um, support us at www.patreon.com slash real Sunkara Hours. $5 a month gets you bonus content so you get double the episodes for five dollars a month uh we do readings theory readings um extra interviews uh rants our last bonus episode was on the late great gil scott heron who is a million times better than bob dylan and much more relevant to our times so if you want if you want to listen to the episode uh yeah support us Five dollars a month at www.patreon.com slash real car hours. We're gonna talk about a bunch of stuff. Uh yeah, we got a, we got a lot to get into. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna be a very doomery episode. Yeah, mostly the dismal state of the economy and, and other stuff. But um anyway, yeah, I am Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson5 on Twitter. And I'm Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M Gun Peter on on the hell side uh and uh just i want to make um before i forget i want to make a quick um sort of movement related announcement so my hometown where i'm located pittsburgh pittsburgh california in the east bay area um there's some really cool local activism going on uh there is a campaign to get the police out of um pittsburgh schools so sacramento Richmond, California, and Oakland, California have all voted to uh, remove police from their schools. So Pittsburgh is trying to do something similar. So I've been, uh, uh, I was in a meeting with uh, local activists uh, to, to, you know, kind of get, get involved in that. And also, um, one demand, if you are a California resident, uh, this is only for people in California because this is a, this is a state bill. It's called uh, AB three three one, and it is to make ethnic studies a high school graduation requirement. So basically, it will require all high school students in the state of California to complete uh, an ethnic studies course. Kind of like you know you have to complete math, English, all that, all that uh, science and all that stuff. So ethnic studies would be a uh, uh, under under this bill, at least, is is proposing that ethnic studies be a uh, be a um a high school graduation requirement. So, if you are in California, call State Senator Anthony Portantino, P O R T A N T I N O. Call him at nine one six nine one six six five one four zero two five. That number is nine one six. 651-4025 and the bill is AB331 is to have ethnic studies in high school make it a requirement so just call that number if you're a California resident best time to call is anytime uh between Monday and Friday from 9 to 5 so you can get like someone to to actually talk to and just say you know hey my name is such and such I live in whatever california like oakland or, or san francisco or wherever and uh say that you support ab331 to have ethnic studies in california high schools so um anyway yeah i've, I've been uh <clears throat> um in touch 
with um, activists, uh, youth activists, and also uh, local teachers to um, basically have ethnic studies and ethnic studies in the school and have get the police out this uh, get the police out of schools. So anyway, just wanted to uh, kind of give basically give an update on that. Um, I mean, obviously the protests are still going on, but yeah. Um, there's always look up whatever local action is going on in your neighborhood. Uh, is there anything like, have you been noticing anything, Peter, where near where you're at? Um, I have not been paying as much attention to what's been going on in Portland though. Uh, there has been some stuff. Um, I will, I will say on a nationwide level, um, Seattle mayor, Jenny Durkin, um, ordered the clearing out of the, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone slash CHOP, um, which we had an interview about in a, one of our patron episodes. Uh, I believe yesterday she ordered the police to come in, sweep the whole area. They loaded everybody, anyone who had stuff there, you know, they loaded it up and basically threw it in the trash. Um, you know, the way they the way they do whenever they do sweeps, any police department does. Um the uh, yeah, the, uh, the they did the same thing in Louisville after there was a shooting at it wasn't an autonomous zone, but there was sort of a protest area that was that had been people had been like camping out at, um, I think, in front of City Hall. And yeah, the Louisville police did the same thing. So, you know, police repression continues. Meanwhile, you know, the Simpsons have decided that, you know, uh, Hank Azaria is not going to voice, you know, characters of color anymore. So, I mean, I guess that's a big win, you know, in case anyone still watches The Simpsons. But <laughs> uh, uh, and also in the news, uh, Vanilla Ice, Ice Ice Baby, dun, 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 dun. Uh, he um, he wanted to have a Fourth of July concert. Despite there being coronavirus now, like live music, like the music industry has has like gone through some very very significant changes. Many of whom, many of those changes really screw over um, artists. But now with with the pandemic, it's you know very very dangerous from a public health perspective to have large concerts. So there's pretty much going to be no live music for like a year. Uh, but Vanilla Ice wants to, wanted to throw a fourth of july concert uh and he said uh his justification we didn't have coronavirus in the 90s well now we do and uh, coronavirus <laughs> but apparently now there's an update uh his his uh his plans have been canceled because it's just too wow. dangerous uh I, th- I think yeah i think he canceled let me let me double check so um, yeah, apparently he recently canceled it. But he at first he was like, "Yeah, man, we're gonna have the concert, man. There's no, there's no coronavirus in the '90s, man." And now he's like, "Okay, actually, yeah, it's a bad idea to have a." Concert. I, I'm I'm sure that I'm sure that they just couldn't sell tickets. There right. is still the herd immunity festival that is being planned in Wisconsin with a bunch of not very good new metal bands. Um, Though they changed the name because they felt like it was bad, but I 
I appreciated that they were calling it that because at least they were being honest about it. So if you want to see Static X um, in Wisconsin, there, there's, there's, there will be a concert for you. Beyond that, I mean, yeah, the situation is pretty bleak. I mean, the jobs report that came out, I guess, a couple days ago. I mean, just even the way Trump, you know, Trump always loves to act like this is the greatest jobs report of all time and, you know, everything. But it's like, oh, thing, unemployment has fallen to only 11.1% officially, right? And that's supposed to be like a sign of uh, of celebration, you know, that the economy is back on track. And to be fair, I mean, the market is, you know, the stock market always keeps somehow in this day and age it always just keeps bounding back up and you know speculation seems to always be going strong but for those of us unfortunate enough to be engaged in the actual productive economy things are are not looking so hot and they're not really going to be getting much better now are they Mm -mm. yeah so the unemployment rate for june uh it was 11.1%, which fell from 13.3% in May. So it's like, okay, that's still yeah, double. That's still, that's still double. higher than the peak of the Great Recession like yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah, and also like this is coming on, on the heels of... So the CDC recently said that the United States has, quote, way too much virus, unquote, to control the <laughs> pandemic as cases surge across the country and i think like too, too much virus so yeah you got you gotta you gotta lower the virus levels america you're uh, so we have not based we have not flattened the curve and where i'm at california like initially california was doing well but what happened is after memorial day people are like oh yeah i'm gonna go out to the beach mostly people in southern california and now our coronavirus cases are are increasing and if you look at i put in the show notes like if you look at some of the data uh you can look by county on on if you go on like john's hop john's hopkins university there they keep good data of COVID 19 and if you, you can track it by county in each state so if you look at by county in california uh the the worst the highest number of cases are in southern california so it's basically like rich people in orange county and in southern california especially places like orange county and around there are very very conservative very rich also very yeah. racist all, yeah i mean the, it's funny all the like suburb worshiping idiots were like no the suburbs are safe it's disease i have a problem and actually no now the suburbs are uh, are getting rocked wow places cities that are still like implementing social distancing are really like actually kind of okay relatively as much as anyone is okay right now you know and uh yeah texas is is bad news florida is ground zero it seems you know that uh i mean yeah america just kind of got tired and then they just we just kind of decided the thing was over and then we just if you just ignore the virus, then it'll go away, I guess, is what we were hoping for. But Yeah, I mean, because I think there are a lot of people who um, they just wanted to go to Fuddruckers or like Applebee's or and it's like, look, I need my Whacker Snackers really bad. And I, I can't be cooked up in quarantine. Um, I need like 
these specific i mean it's it's these are uh, people for whom that is the highest expression of american liberty is, right is casual dining but also um you know part of the a big part of the opening up was getting people off of unemployment because mm-hmm. capitalism did a bit of a cell phone in that regard because you know basically anyone who had a shitty service job that then got put on employment i mean i I and I absolutely include myself in this, um, was making much more on unemployment than they were um, wet at their actual job beforehand. And so there was, uh, even with unemployment as at the level that it's at now, people aren't quite, it's not quite, there isn't quite the same sense of desperation because of that extra $600 a week. But that is poi, you know, that got, you know, the petty bourgeois really, really mad because, you know, now they can't, I mean, now they can't exploit their workers the way they used to. And so they're ba- the Republicans are basically going to let it expire. And that's going to wreak all sorts of havoc on the economy because, you know, at the very least, like it was kind of a backdoor basic universal basic income where people could still, you know, have some semblance of their regular lives, you know, and be able to, you know, buy the things that they needed and not be under complete, um, you know, and total desperation. But, of course, (laughs) nobody, you know, everyone hates, you know, the owning class of America really hates it when a working class is not under total desperation. It really, really chaps their ass, so... What's what's the situation been like where you work, Peter? Like in terms, because uh, you're yeah, because you're back at work. Like, what's it like? Uh, I, I I mean, it sucks. You know, for some reason, people seem to be like extra entitled now, or we're just getting the weirdos. But you know, it is things. There obviously there's less capacity, um, but it seems like demand. I mean, is relative it's not entirely back to the to what it was last year obviously but you know thing they're still like it's still busy um but it is like yeah everyone's you know everyone's really done with this shit and they really don't want to be there (laughs) so related to what you're saying so there's this um article that appeared in cnbc uh titled a housing apocalypse is coming as uh as coronavirus protections across the country expire i'm gonna read i'll I'll read a couple quotes from this and then we can uh we can kind of like sort of discuss it from there because this this pretty much ties into what we're talking about so um uh, yeah, so like basically, so it says, even before the coronavirus pandemic, the U.S. was experiencing what housing experts and advocates deemed an eviction crisis. More than 2 million people face eviction every year, far more than the number of people who face foreclosure at the height of the 2008 mortgage crisis. Experts expect the, evic- the eviction crisis to get far worse in the coming months. The COVID-19 economic recession has hit renters especially hard. They make up a disproportionate share of service sector jobs in industry that has been decimated as a result of the coronavirus shutdowns. Um, And then it goes on. 
In fact, between March 25th and April 10th of this year, nearly half of renters aged 18 to 64 reported that they were having trouble paying their rent or utilities, were food insecure, or couldn't afford needed medical care, according to the Urban Institute. Uh, Thousands of tenants have been missing rent payments over the past few years. People of color have have fared worse than white renters due to the disproportionate job loss in their communities, the Urban Institute reports. About 25% of black and Latino renters reporting not paying or deferring rent in May, compared to 14% of white renters. Um, and then it, it goes on. So like, so this is where it gets like the, the unemployment aspect. Um, so actually, wait, hold on. Uh, yeah, so, the, so um, apparently, yes, it says the federal government banned evictions in federally assisted properties through July 25th. So federal, like, so basically HUD properties, basically, through July 25th. Right now, we're recording this at July 2nd. So this is July 25th. It's coming up soon. In some cities, it says, in some cities and states, including Massachusetts, New York, and Michigan, put their own temporary eviction moratoriums in place. But many of those bans begin expiring this month, depending on the state according to Princeton Princeton University's eviction lab, which tracks evictions across the country, plus the extra $600 per week in federal unemployment benefits is set to expire at the end end of July. That extra money is what has been allowing many people who have lost their jobs to continue paying rent, Solomon Green, a senior fellow in housing policy at the Urban Institute, tells CNBC Make It. Coupled with the end of eviction moratoriums, the U.S. is likely to experience an uptick in evictions nationwide in the coming weeks. Um, And so basically, yeah, so uh, at the beginning of of this coronavirus pandemic, um, uh, uh, this this is just me now, I'm I'm not reading from the articles. So at the beginning of, of this pandemic, there were a few like tiny, tiny ass protections, right? So there were uh, there was supposed to be like a moratorium on evictions, um, and a slight uptick in unemployment benefits, like an extra an extra six hundred dollars a month on top of what you normally make for unemployment. In in a lot yeah. of cases, it can be around like two hundred or three hundred a month for unemployment. Yeah, it was like two. It was like two twenty. You know, once you take out taxes, is what yeah. I was getting a month a week before the the 600 kicked in and right yeah <laughs> so those on it so basically the end of july so basically like three to four weeks from now like i said we're recording this is july 2nd 2020 uh so basically in three weeks um these protections are going to expire the eviction protections and the unemployment benefits so that was supposed to keep people afloat because you know, with the shutdown, like, uh, work has been paused for a lot of people, so that means uh, loss in income, which also means that um, it's going to be more difficult for people to pay for things like rent, mortgage, utilities, food, those sorts of things. So uh, what would make sense is that, okay, you just cancel t- debts or have, like, a debt jubilee and, and, and pa- pause uh, rent and mortgages. Um but that was not done. It was like, okay, we'll give you like a little band-aid here, but those protections are set to expire at the end of this month. So those little bit of benefits that people needed, which were far from enough, 
um, once those expire and there's nothing done, there could be basically what this article says, a housing apocalypse, which would mean a people losing their fuck losing their fucking yeah, apartments because they can't and, pay rent. Yeah, and to be clear, I mean, especially in the context of a massive recession, like a lot of those people are just going to be on the street. It's not going to be like they they'll move mm-hmm. to a different they'll be able to move to a different place. I mean, if you can't if you're getting evicted because you can't pay your rent, then you're just going to be on the street. And I, you know, the ha- the infrastructure to deal with houseless people is already pressed to the brink. It's also already you know massive health liabilities. Um. So I I also want to bring up like what this article says that uh, experts are suggesting. So, um, that said, is the article says the crisis requires a large scale government response, according to experts. If state and local governments don't help, don't step in to help soon, there will be a tsunami of evictions and a spike in homelessness nationwide that will devastate not just individuals and their communities, but the economy broadly. Um. And this person who's the president of uh, uh, Diane Yentl, who's the uh, president of um, National Low Income Housing Coalition, uh, they're pretty good. Like uh, this group, like they're pretty good, like on tracking the, these kinds of things for how housing uh, impacts uh, low income people. So says she says uh, now more than ever, housing is healthcare. Says Yentl, ensuring housing stability for all is both a moral imperative and a public health necessity. End quote. Um, Activists have been pushing for reforms and policies like increased rental assistance and rent cancellation since the start of the pandemic. Those states have been slow to move, and the federal government has done little to support tenants. One measure the government could take immediately, says Durana, is to ensure that renters who qualify for federal rent- rental assistance actually get the funds. Currently, only one in four eligible recipients receive it. Increased resources for tenants, like providing advocates and legal support to tenants facing eviction, would also help keep people in their homes in the years and decades to come, says Green. He also advocates for targeted relief measures like allocating roughly $100 billion to cover rent for low-income tenants through the crisis and mortgage relief for landlords. Now, $100 billion is like pennies on a dollar compared to what the Federal Reserve gave gave the banks at the beginning. So... Yeah, that money is there. Yeah, it, it, of course it is. I mean, they may end up having to do something just because, like, they're not completely suicidal, like just out of an, an interest in pr- self-preservation of capitalism. Right. Like, they, yeah, you know, they may send out some more relief checks, but it is like it's going like the thing, like the situation is just going to kind of stagnate, and I mean. You know, if you think about the Depression, right, like the crash happened in 29 and it was four years, you know, before even FDR got in. And then, you know, it was still another three or four years after that before, you know, everything took off as like all sort of those programs got implemented. And I mean, also as the wartime economy picked up. So that may end up being what we <laughs> um what we uh what we end up doing is uh just trying to find another war to to get involved in but that's going to be I, I don't I don't I don't think there's really a whole lot on the table right now that's going to that could have that much of an effect economically speaking um so it is 
like I think you know very much in my own personal life it is like I'm trying to imagine the next couple of years as like things to you know in entering a different mentality in the way you approach life because you gotta you know people got you gotta be you gotta save your money which is the other thing about um about reset about depressions is that you know once people become more insecure they stop spending and they save their money and then that hurts the economy because then people aren't spending and it you know relies on consumer spending it you know becomes sort of a chain reaction and that's you know, that's one of the things that we're at risk for right now people they're able you know the markets or the ruling class or whoever are able to convince themselves that this is like only a temporary thing um and that you know if we just get print print enough money to paper it over then you know everything will get back to back to back to business but the problem is that what we're papering over is an economy that's already hollowed out that is yeah. like that is up to its eyeballs and debt that's incredibly over leveraged and and you know this a this kind of recession was on it was happening was on its way to happening even before covid and so mm-hmm. you know all this kind of stuff is just is playing out amidst that amid and you know covid in a sense is just kind of the ultimate like indicator of consumer confidence because it's like yeah i mean nobody wants or at least not nearly as many people you know only the real yolo types are like really like going out and spending you know like there's no tomorrow like americans are supposed to like it was our patriotic duty after 9-11 um (laughs) when really i mean most sane people are realizing that like yeah you need to we need to, people need to start you need to start saving i mean and for me at least you know the, the stimulus checks and the unemployment and stuff was like the first time i was a lot i could even save anything mm-hmm. in in years so i you know the there's a it's it's not this is not you know Barring like the kind of massive government investment that you know got us out of the depression seventy years ago, the kind of social welfare policies that you know the Democratic Party just went overdrive in suppressing you know the political movement that was for that, instead you know running the bagman of the credit card company who's going to put Larry Summers in charge of everything you know. so barring that since that's not going to happen i mean no matter what happens with the election i mean it's still going to be just bad news for for regular people and the problem of course with that is that as this uh as this goes on um you know america doesn't for the for a long time has been able to kind of skate by with like the kind of you know, fiscal decisions that if it were a developing country, the IMF would have just like completely wrecked their shit and they wouldn't even mm-hmm. be allowed to have like an education system. Um, mm-hmm. But because yeah. we're the global reserve currency, that has been like, it's just assumed that like, yeah, consequences don't happen to us. But all of that could change and it could change much more quickly 
than anyone realizes. You know, there are a lot of people who are predicting that a coming collapse um, of the dollar will happen. Uh, this is from a Bloomberg article set that says uh, coronavirus brings American decline out in the open. And it says, and a bigger danger might come later. The U.S. has long enjoyed a so-called exorbitant privilege as the financial center of the world with the dollar as the linchpin of the global financial system. This means the U.S. has been able to borrow money cheaply and Americans have been able to sustain their lifestyles through cheap imports. But enough invest. But if enough investors, foreign and domestic, lose confidence in the U.S.'s general effectiveness as a country, that advantage will vanish. If capital begins to advantage the abandon the U.S. and the dollar in large amounts, the currency will crash, and Americans will find themselves paying much more for everything from cars to televisions to gasolines to imported food. Interest rates will be raised in an attempt to lure back investment capital. And the country might undergo a period of stagflation worse than the 1970s. Um, it's important, you know, in the 70s, yeah, the stagflation crisis mm -hmm. was the sort of initial crisis of Keynesian welfare state capitalism, where the government played a more uh, heavy handed role in the market. And, you know, uh, course because the rate of profit tends to fall um you know capitalism goes through you know periods of crises and in the 70s they responded by just kind of doubling down on neo that's when neoliberalism came out as a theory as a response to it which was basically just like well let's just undo all the regulations that built the kind of uh strong welfare states of in the post-World War II era, and let's just instead let corporations go crazy. And that bill, I mean, that was always just like, you know, an extra, like, nitrous fuel in the gas tank, but it was going to run out at some point. So in some sense, like, you know, this is a, the bill that's coming due now is one that's like 45 years in the making, um, which is not to be completely alarmist, but... The thing is that, you know, in the there is no alternative era, there's no real reason for uh, the ruling class to cooperate and, like, play ball to any degree to, like, give workers a, uh, you know, some semblance of, like, a functioning standard of living, even, you know, the, even if applied on racist lines, you know, even that kind of basic social contract that was made in the form of, you know, suburbia and the form of home ownership as a means of building wealth, all of that is, you know, up for debate. And there's no real reason for the ruling class to give, you know, the workers anything right now. They have no compelling interest. I mean, there is competition from China and other emerging markets, but there is no threat that you know, if, you know, even if the U.S. collapses, they'll just sell off to China or whatever, and they'll still be able, they might lose some money, but they won't get expropriated. They won't fundamentally lose their power. They just might have to serve a different master, but they'll, their position will still rel be relatively maintained. Um, but they, but yeah, they don't have to, 
They don't have to worry about, you know, everyone just getting sick of this shit and rising up and, and taking all their shit. They're pretty convinced that that will never happen anymore because, you know, we put, we closed the book on all that revolution business. Um, so this, uh, I mean, every, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's not, it's that plus COVID, which could be just going on for, you know, years because, it, you know, even if there is a vaccine, you know, at least in, in the U S of course, uh, Pfizer or whatever drug companies are going to yeah. sell it at, ex- at exorbitant levels and mm-hmm. prevent it from being widely available. And the virus may have mutated at that point anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, they they already uh, found another potential virus in pigs in China that are that could be pandemic level, but so far it has not transferred to humans. Yeah. But I that think like there's all... Flow. There's all kinds of viruses that are, you know, dormant, like that 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 yeah. have not been I w- I, w- I will say that you know, the animal rights people are correct in that, like, yeah, slaughterhouses are just hotbeds mm. for diseases. Yeah, and you know, the argument for reducing meat consumption is also just like a public health argument at this point because it, that yeah. shit is nuts. And even, even like an environmental one, because I mean, like last year, I mean, Bolsonaro basically just burned the fucking Amazon in Brazil. And the, you know, the Amazon is a major carbon sink. Like it soaks up a lot of carbon dioxide, which is, that's something we need to basically save us from uh, an even worse climate crisis and burning. I mean, he burned huge chunks of the Amazon rainforest for the beef industry. That was the yeah. reason is to clear the land for the beef industry. Good old, and good now, old, good old Bolsonaro, America's only hope for not being the absolute worst at this. Yeah, Brazil <laughs> fucks it up even worse than we do. That's yeah. that you know we could at least not be the worst. That's that's really all we're going for now. Is is yeah. I guess hoping that Brazil does a worse job. And I mean, in Bra- Brazil under Bolsonaro, I mean, like, uh, not only is you know they're. they're both Trump and Bolsonaro just like just totally odious far right fascist racist fucks um like in Brazil you know especially when it comes to black lives matter and and these uprisings against police violence against black people um Brazil is very similar like the number mm-hmm. like Brazilian police kill I was I was just reading an article um a couple days ago that that like apparently Brazilian police kill just as many people as the United States police. And most, a lot nice. of people, a lot of people that well, the police they, kill are black people, particularly in the favelas. Well, and they learn from the best, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm sure we've trained them. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, I mean, Brazil and most of Latin America has a very, very similar settler colonial history as the United States. So it's like, you know, this, this stuff is not accidental. Um, but yeah, like right now in Brazil, actually, there there have been protests against uh, um, police violence. There is a young man, uh, João Pedro, who, a teenager, who was killed by a police. And um, there have been similar protests in Brazil against police violence and racism. Uh, and th- it's, it's been, I mean, like, um, you know, this, this episode is very, very bleak. But I think uh, one, one thing to sort of take 
hope and inspiration from is ever since the Black Lives Matter protest, um, there has been a lot of international solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And you can see it in Brazil. You can see it in parts of Africa, um, even other parts of Latin America, like Colombia and Mexico. So, you know, like this, this, this shit is global. Like, I think yeah. that, you know, we're feeling it. It's the most acute in the United States because the United States is basically like the world's policeman and the, the, the global empire. But, um, the, the crisis of the collapse of the neo, neoliberal order is a global one. And the pandemic obviously is not just confined to the United States. It's, it's global, but the United States is fucking it up the worst. And also right below the United States, Brazil is also fucking it up. So like in terms of the number of yeah. cases uh, and because Br- Bolsonaro is very similar to Trump that he didn't, he didn't take the coronavirus and science seriously hasn't done shit to deal with it and now um it's very i mean yeah like the kind of institutional racism we see in the united states is very it's very similar to brazil like a lot of people who are dying of coronavirus are black and indigenous people um and by the way brazil outside of the african continent has the largest black population in, uh, in brazil and that's because during during the transatlantic slave trade a huge chunk of the slaves went to Brazil uh, during the slave trade. So, like, out of the 10 to 12 million slaves who were trafficked during the transatlantic slave trade from the early 1500s to when slavery was abolished in Brazil in 1888, uh, around 4 million were sent to Brazil, particularly directly from uh Congo Angola region and directly across the Atlantic to Brazil. So I say that because um yeah, I mean like 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 capitalism and racism like the, the this is these are global systems, but they're because the United States is is the world's, you know, global hegemon, uh th- these sorts of issues are felt very very uh acutely here, but they also have ramifications for the rest of the world and uh, yeah i mean like I, I brought up bolsonaro because um i have a feeling that the burning of the amazon relates to the fact that the arctic just reached 100 degrees like the arctic circle reached 100 degrees yeah. which is a a record which is yeah um i have a hard time wrapping my head around that one because yeah i get i guess it's like you know, it's still summer, so I guess mm-hmm. like I feel like aren't there still some ice caps up there? Yeah, but... I mean it's it was within Siberia and I think before it hit one hundred, right around now, I think the previous high record was like ninety eight or ninety ninety nine degrees, but that was a record high. It normally doesn't normally around yeah. this time of year, the Arctic Circle region the hot the high is like around sixty eight degrees Fahrenheit. But now yeah. it hit it hit one hundred, and there have been wildfires in the Arctic. So, hell um, yeah, yeah, like so, <laughs> fuck yeah. Let's um, do it. Let's do it. No, no, no time to waste. No reason to fuck around. Let's let's get it all in now. I yeah. mean, let's you know why not? Why not? Yeah, I mean, like all of these crises we're talking about, like they're happening simultaneously and they're all feeding into each other and it's becoming a more and more explicit. So there's the, 
um, I guess you could, I don't know if it's a crisis of white supremacy, but like, I mean, there are just more, um, uprisings against, uh, racism in the United States. Like there's more intense activism against systemic racism in the United States and even more protests happening around the world in solidarity of Black Lives Matter. So there's that. Then there's also, like we're talking about, the state of the economy, which is also linked to the pandemic. So the pandemic basically caused, well, I mean, like the the economy, yeah, as as you said, Peter, like the recession was bound to happen anyway, but the pandemic was basically just like kicked it into high gear. So, so the pandemic basically kicked the, the, basically triggered this recession and then, um, because everyone's stuck indoors and watching the same te- same thing, everyone saw the image of George Floyd just, you know, breathe his, you know, his 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 last breath, saying, "I can't breathe," and you know, it's sort of like a perfect storm for social unrest. And then also, like the the Bloomberg article is saying, um, if the United States does not handle these crises well, then that could yeah. mean investors lose confidence because, in the American dollar. Yeah, uh, and a good ex- a good indicator of this is Egypt, who you know, despite I mean, yeah, it's run by a, a military dictatorship, but you know, for a military dictatorship, its economy is doing quite well, and it sold off half a billion dollars in uh, in treasury bonds, and I. You know, that could be a bigger thing, be, you know, they're buying, uh, you know, yuans and uh, and euros and, you know, somehow the eurozone might actually emerge from this, you know, in better shape just because the dollar is going to get, you know, it's going to might take a beating, um, you know, and China has been pushing to have more trade uh, be done in their currency, too to develop alternatives to the dollar as the only possible currency for international trade. If that stuff uh, accelerates, especially because the way the way the treasure, the way the Fed gets away with just printing trillions of dollars is that it gets bought up by uh, de- investors in, you know, developing countries in the form of treasury bonds. If there, if those bonds don't get bought, then that's, then that tr- extra trillion dollars is just floating around, and that's how you get, you know, hyperinflation. So, I mean, th- all these things could be coming. Um, you know, we'll see, we'll see exactly how dysfunctional the ruling class is right now if they don't have if they have some semblance of uh, of you know self preservation instincts because they may not. Uh, yeah. Uh, speaking of dysfunction, so in in the San Francisco Bay Area, this is just so. God, when I read this, I was just like, "What the fuck?" Um, so apparently, uh, there was a June. There's a meeting on June nineteenth, a couple weeks ago, by uh, administrators of the Santa Clara Unified School District. Um, and basically, I think there are more than forty school principals in the San Francisco Bay Area. So basically. Someone at this meeting, at the June nineteenth meeting, and it was an in it was an in person meeting, f- over forty people. Someone tested positive a few days later, a few days after June nineteenth. So right now, 
more than 40 school principals are in quarantine after basically being exposed to coronavirus during this in-person meeting. And you know what they were discussing? The prospect of re- uh, basically reopening schools. Uh, so there you I'm mean, like, right. so <laughs> great. <laughs> great. So 40, over 40 school principals in the, in the Bay Area are in quarantine yeah. after possibly being exposed to coronavirus after attending an in-person meeting to discuss reopening the schools. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the and the thing about that is, right, like, daycares are shut down. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people, you know, parents now are, like, in, you know, the impossible dilemma of, like, trying to work from home while watching their kids and having their kids be cooped up and driving them insane. Um, and, you know, school basically was daycare for a lot of people. Oh, and, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and... So on some level, it is like, you know, people don't know what to do, you know, that people don't know what to do, but it is, you know, another just whole layers upon layers of problems. I mean, this is a big reason why universal child care is like so important and a thing that needs to happen. Um, but, you know, beyond that, of course, we wouldn't be in, I, I hate the phrase the cool zone, but... <laughs> We wouldn't be in the most interesting of times if uh, if there weren't some fantastic news coming out of uh, occupied Palestine. You've heard about this one, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Why don't you explain it? Um, apparently they're they're backing off on the timeline, but uh, the uh, the incoming you know I guess Netanyahu's out basically, but the guy coming in to replace him is just equally as psychotic and. They are planning on doing the thing, which is annexing the West Bank. And mm-hmm. if they go through with that, you know, that's basically the end of anything resembling, you know, a two state solution or any. I mean, it is almost the end of Pal- Palestine. I mean, it it is. Yeah. In terms of it, I guess, like like Palestine being any kind of practical geopolitical entity. Yeah. Like, basically, it's because it's like, I mean, yeah, I mean, Palestine, the West Bank and Gaza have pretty much been under Israeli occupation for, I mean, it's going back Since to, 60, you know. 68. You're right, yeah. Uh, and obviously, the the roots of it tracing back 67. to, like, yeah, uh, the roots of it tracing back to, you know, decades of, 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 of Israeli uh, colonization. But yeah, ever since the Six, the, the six Day War in 1967, um, the West Bank in particular and in Gaza Strip. Well, Gaza Strip is not technically occupied, but like is basically under like a I mean, siege. Yeah, basic... <laughs> it, it's a it's a it's a gigantic prison essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know the the West Bank has been littered with settlements that are illegal already to the point that it mm-hmm. is kind of. I mean, the two state solution in the sense of Palestine ever being like a functionally economically independent state have has never been, you know, on the cards. It would always end, still end up being a dependency of Israel, which is the way they want it. But, you know, that that was the liberal solution. That was the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that, was, that was the compromise. You know, the real, the real psychotic, genocidal elements of, you know, the Israeli political landscape don't, don't want that. They just want the whole fucking thing. 
and right. they may start doing it, you know, and we, you know, if that happens, I mean, there will be another intifada. There's no way around it. Mm-hmm. And it will, it, you know, things will get, you know, real bloody. Um, I, I want to, so there's an Al Jazeera article. I want to, I want to I wanna, uh, bring this up because uh, it has some. Um, so I guess, I guess apparently, um, I think, I think the plan is being stalled, but we'll see. But so this is from an Al Jazeera article and it has some, uh, passages that I think add some context to what we're talking about. Um, so I'm reading from the article. I'm angry because this is history repeating, repeating itself. Zaina Mustafa, a 20 year old student from Ramallah said, yeah, said her, uh, the annexation is another Nakba catastrophe and Naksa day of setback. She added, referring to the 1948 Palestinian, Palestinian exodus that saw more than 700,000 Palestinian Arabs expelled from their homes and an Israeli state declared, and the 1967 Six-Day War after that saw Israel take control of the West Bank from Jordan and the Gaza Strip from Egypt. For uh, Bilal Gaith, a 40-year-old resident of Ramallah, the annexation plan would push, push Palestinians further under a state of occupation and military rule. As soon as the annexation plan is declared, it will be the end of the it will be the end of the Oslo Accords, he said, referring to the nineteen ninety three agreement which established the Palestinian Palestinian Authority PA and gave it limited powers. We can potentially lose every single bit of our lands and live as prisoners under Israeli rule, he added. In the in the lead up to the anticipated declaration, the head of the PA and the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, said the authority had terminated all of its agreements with Israel and the United States amid Israel's pers- push for annexation um yeah like so um the prime minister of palestine warned that if israel goes ahead with the plan palestinians would unilaterally declare a state along the pre-1967 borders mm-hmm. so yeah like this this basically i mean like this is a very this is a very just like uh I'm putting it nicely, but a very audacious move. I'm trying to find a word to, but it's, it's like it's it's, 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 just, it's insanity, I mean, right? It's just a massive fuck you to the gen- Palestinians. It's genocidal, is, is what yeah. it is. It's yeah. that that's that those that's what those people want, mm-hmm. and because you know the U.S. will back Israel through thick and thin, right? And is proud of doing so. Every from the president down to fucking state legislatures passing laws to criminalize you know bds movements i mean it's the whole fucking thing is and you know propped up by america because you know people try to act people sometimes say that like is the israeli lobby like controls america but it's it is the opposite like israel is an outpost for western imperial interests and you know, Western Imperial designs on the Middle East. It's also a fantastic testing ground for tools um, for occupation, you know, for counterinsurgency techniques. Uh, I believe the chokeholds that, you know, like the ones used against Eric Garner were like pioneered, uh, you know, by the IDF in, um, in occupying Palestine. I mean, it's, the whole, you know, it 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 radiates back and forth. You know, uh, police departments do training with Israeli 
police and uh yeah it's it's all it's all it's all you know part of the same you know a global occupation industry you know then -hmm. they sell then they because that because you know the israeli tech scene is mostly you know ex-military people who use occupation technology and develop it for commercial purposes sell it to uh, other countries that are interested in, you know, uh, repressive technologies. I, and so it is, you know, there's three, there's three or four layers of this stuff and, you know, all, all predicated on, you know, keeping a boot on the neck of Palestinians. And it's, you know, as, as, you know, you know, in direct comparison to the kind of occupational, presence that the police have in black neighborhoods in american cities i mean at some you know after a point like yeah you know people just get sick of it and you know they have to they have to react and you know they don't react on terms favorable to them but you know it's after some point you can only take so much of that without just you know wanting to you know fucking blow everything up uh, yeah, and also like I mean, because uh, there there have been a lot of comparisons between the racist oppression of Black people and Native Americans in the United States with the you know Israel's colonization and oppression of Palestinians, and you know oftentimes like you know when people do these analogies, sometimes like they're not always perfect, and it can sound sort of myopic, but I do think that there is plenty of evidence in the case of like like there is definitely a feedback loop between the american state apparatus and the israeli state apparatus and there's a lot of collaboration so like it's not just the united states giving um israel billions of basically three billion dollars a year in aid most of it military and a lot of it like part of that aid is like israel gets u.s money to buy american weaponry essentially right so it which benefits like american defense contractors so like there's a feedback loop there but there's also like you know because cops have been further and further militarized to get if they want to get quote-unquote expertise they want to learn from the best and often the best when it comes to counterinsurgency and domestic repression Israel is one of the best because they get a lot yeah. of practice in terms of inflicting constant violence against the Palestinians. And that's something that, that Israel kind of brags about, particularly to law enforcement. So there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of American cops get training by the IDF, by Israel. And there there definitely is like, that adds like another dimension to the uh, US and Israeli um, alliance, which is that the United States domestically um, has always sought to control black people and Native Americans ever since, you know, this just going back to the, the, the beginnings of settler colonialism and slavery in the United States. And obviously the police being rooted in slave patrols are a huge part of that. And then Israel wanting to control the Palestinians so that Israel can further annex and colonize Palestinian territories and use violence and repression to further that agenda. So basically, both of these countries have overlapping agendas. So 
there's the cooperation between the two is very very deep now like i I, you know i don't think ending cooperation between american police and israel israel will end the police terrorism against black people because police violence against black people has been going on well before israel was created as a as a nation state but i think like for people who are involved and care about these sorts of issues that's something i think to really consider like in terms of the the scale of the system that we are up against like yeah i I think that's important to keep in mind that like there is a feedback loop between the you know domestic law enforcement and also our you, you know the united states wars overseas and the military and also a feedback loop between domestic law enforcement in the U- in the U.S. and Israel's state apparatus, and it's, that's also I think, you know, if the U.S. and Israeli governments are going to cooperate when it comes to engaging their, their pursuing their agendas of domestic repression of 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 marginalized people, um, that also means I think activists should also. Yeah. Uh, coordinate with one another. So yeah, I think, like you know, yeah, and, yeah, and uh, Palestinian solidarity has always been a big part of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, mm-hmm. It's that's always been part of it. One thing I always like to think about, um, and it comes to Palestine, is that yeah, Israel is a healthy, functioning democracy, quote unquote, only democracy in the Middle East, as it likes to say. And you know, yeah, it's got a it's got an electoral system where people vote in you know people vote you know it's also massively corrupt but you know it's corrupt in a in a way that's supposedly accountable or whatever but it's still like uh (laughs) you know the like there's no amount of voting that's gonna change like that's gonna end the israeli occupation if it's like try like all the people who are like you better fucking vote right it's like try imagine telling that to a palestinian that's like oh no you just need to vote and yeah, if you don't that, like your condition like a voting that's totally going to end the settlements bro yeah, it's totally exactly, like you just exactly. got if you vote biden he that will mean palestinians like the the annexation but i mean I, like you know, <laughs> no but i mean like if you're if you live in you know or even if you're like an arab person you know who has israeli citizenship it still is like yeah no if you guys just got together and voted, just came out and voted, then you could end, you know, this terroristic occupation state, right? Right? That's totally how it works. I mean, I just think it's a great example of the limitations of of voting as the primary means of political action. Because... Yeah, particularly voting within a bourgeois, like, <laughs> dimmer, like, yeah, like, bourgeois in all elements, like, yeah, like, trying to vote out class enemies within a bourgeois system yeah. just doesn't work yeah or trying to vote away <laughs> a terroristic occupation it's like what yeah um, yeah i uh i mean speaking of voting i mean <laughs> i i don't i'm not i i feel like the election has like gone off gone off the radar amongst a lot of people for for good reason because like what the fuck is voting going to do to to mitigate the (laughs) this ongoing systematic police violence against black people and other other non-whites but well well, you know you just need to vote 
in Democrats to all the mayorships and they'll they'll know what to do, right? Yeah, they will um they're gonna have like a kumbaya fest with the police uh, and be like, Hey, you know, the way to end policing is like I just hope, you know, the police chief just reads Bill Hooks and checks his white privilege honestly, and honestly un- understand police, white fragility <laughs> like, police chiefs that'll are, end racism police chiefs are woke now i'm sure there are police chiefs that have read robin d'angelo's white fragility um it doesn't matter because <laughs> right that's not what the function of the police is you know and it's it's democrats who oversaw all these murderous police departments getting more and more money and they're still getting more and more money um i think new york like they did a fake defund where they like said they were going to, but really they're just moving money around, which is I think something mm-hmm. we called um, because that's exactly the kind of thing that these, I mean, it blows my mind the way Democrats have responded to this in that they treat it as a negotiation. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the, you know, the black vote is supposed to be the base of the democratic party. And so if that's like, if that, uh, community population is demanding something you know by the theory of you know politics it would be like oh well we should give them that because they're our base of support but no it's they treat it literally as a negotiation which is to say that they treat their base of support as something that is fundamentally hostile to their interests and you know i guess that it is uh because that's you know they need a terroristic police state to have ghettos, but also subdue them so that um, so that businesses can feel safe in investing in their cities. Um, so, yeah, it's it's bad all around. Uh, and what's funny, the reason why I brought up voting, not because obviously I don't, I don't think voting is going to fix fix this stuff, but what I find rather interesting are the people who are basically MIA in a situation. And those two people are Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Because Bernie Sanders, like up until this point, you know, much of, you know, what we call the white left has been like, the way to get progressive change is to just vote in Bernie Sanders and implement social democracy and blah, blah, blah. And like, like, we're going through probably, you know, one of the most, uh, at least this wave of protests, for black lives matter is huge and bernie sanders who you know from 2016 to 2020 he was this insurgent candidate this movement candidate um like if there's a time for him to i guess you can see like take advantage of the situation to say like i am the guy you should vote for to implement you know this agenda that's being demanded from protesters in this massive social movement um bernie sanders is like largely missing in action and joe biden i mean like i mean no one gives a shit about joe biden at this point but i just think it's interesting that like you know that biden is just in his basement trump is just further fucking things up i yeah. i wonder how the i wonder how the debates are gonna go i think they're good i have a feeling they're gonna be pretty funny just seeing i i think they're, i think they're just gonna be stupid everyone will be on their best uh behavior they'll give biden enough adrenaline shots They'll give them both enough adrenaline shots. Um, but since we are talking about voting, should we also mention the, I mean, for me, it seemed pretty blatantly rigged uh, Kentucky Senate primary where. Oh, I, I have not 
kept up with it. Well, why don't you bring it up? Yeah. Sure. Um, I mean, it it's interesting because you have, you know, out-of-state Democrats, all the rich like Silicon Valley and Hollywood mega donors have been frothing at the mouth trying to get rid of Mitch McConnell. And, you know, it is very much a sort of exercise in comic ineptitude. So uh, Trillbilly Workers Party is a podcast that's based in Kentucky and has been covering a lot of this stuff. But they, you know, the establishment pick is Amy McGrath, a retired fighter pilot who, like, I'm pretty sure has dropped bombs on civilians. Um, And she's... (laughs) Yeah, and it's just, like, basically, you know, Biden-esque and, like, her complete, really, lack of any discernible policy. Um, hmm. But she was going up against Charles Booker, who was, you know, state representative, um, a black man, and also was very active, like, in the protests around Louisville. And Louisville has really been a hot spot for obvious reasons, because, you know, the killers of Breonna Taylor are still you know, watching Netflix, ordering uh, Domino's or whatever. And, you know, he, I mean, he surged really lately and he got a lot of big endorsements, though. The, you know, a lot of those endorsements, like from AOC and I think possibly from Bernie Sanders, but, um, you know, from that kind of constellation of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, they all came in really late, like a little too late to actually do anything. But more infamously, um, the the state of Kentucky closed 2000 polling locations. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And in the in in Louisville, which is the biggest city, you know, which is half black, they had one polling location open and it was at the convention center, you know, and like people reported that like there was an hour long wait in traffic just to get just to get there right and then they tried to close the polling center at like six o'clock um and yeah like um and then apparently six thousand votes for charles booker have gotten have just you know gone missing i mean this is the same stuff that we saw you know in the primaries you know the iowa massive app fuck up and all all this kind of shit i mean this is just i mean it's just blatant suppression it's just like completely anti-democratic moves i mean it, it they understand that like nobody actually wants what they're selling and so in order to advance their agendas they really have to just disenfranchise people right now and it is just like as far as i'm concerned it just makes no sense to understand this country you know, in anything or on a national level, any election as like legitimate or representing like any legitimate will of the population, because right. the whole thing is just, you know, as we've said before, if this were if this were a Latin American country, uh, they'd have been cooed by now. I mean, relating to that, I just saw or, an article that popped up. Um, apparently, Marin County. In the San Francisco Bay Area, so for those of you who don't know, Marin County is directly north. It's rich, from... rich, rich. All the rich hippies love uh, in Marin so County. Marin County has the highest coronavirus infection rate in the Bay Area. 
That's that's because they're all that's because they're all natural. It's all all those herbal supplements uh, didn't work. I mean, there's there's a lot of like rich hippie anti-vaxxer types in Northern California. So part of me is not surprised that Marin County has the highest infection rate in the Bay Area. I mean, so Marin County, like if you're in San Francisco and you go right across the Golden Gate north of San Francisco, you're hitting Marin County, and yeah, so apparently Marin County has the highest coronavirus infection rate in the San, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, I just wanted to mention that because that's, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, all there's, there's just so much shit happening. I, I wonder, like, are we going to have a fucking election? Like, I mean, what the fuck is going to happen with voting? Like, what, uh, what are we t- I uh, you know we'll see. I'm I feel like we're getting signals that like, you know the part the Republican Party apparatus that you know has basically, it's I don't think it's correct to say that Trump has taken control of the Republican Party and like he yeah they put him on a leash and he's still on a leash and they may just you know in the same way that de- the Democrats don't really care about winning they just care about fundraising. I mean I there's certainly elements of that in the Republican Party where. You know, they may just like cut him loose and just not really care and let Biden win. And then they can, you know, do some mat- some killer fucking austerity and, you know, yeah, increase military budgets and all that fun stuff. And then they can just fundraise off it and then, you know, bring in Tucker Carlson in 2024. And then they can get around to like some serious fascism because this is because I mean, you know, clearly Trump wanted to roll tanks um, in the initial outburst and uh yeah the army wasn't going to do it i mean the supreme court john roberts has been issuing a set of rulings that are a little more defiant or at least not going along with you know what some white some might some white (laughs) imagine (laughs) some might imagine like the you know the current state of the supreme court to do uh i mean we'll see you know i you know it seems kind of like Trump might be cooked, but you know who knows what's going to happen. Um, yeah. But either way, the the problems are so much bigger than that, and also just the way the Democratic Party is sort of curdling and coalescing into, you know, having its uh, voter base in under total epistemic closure with mm-hmm. MSNBC the way Fox Fox News has done for the Republican voting base. Um, while it's, you know, accelerates to the right, it seems that, like, you know, any semblance of left or progressive movement are just going to be out in the cold. And I think, uh, you know, a number of them will eventually start to wake up. Even the ones that are, you know, only in it for careers purposes will realize, like, oh, like, even that's not going to work. And, you know, that may hasten the demise of the Democratic Party, fingers crossed. Um, but... Uh, you know, it's it remains to be seen. We we are not all knowing sages. Um, yeah, I mean, we're approaching like one minute. I mean, sorry, one hour and eleven minutes. So I'll just I'll just say sort of my final thoughts to wrap this up. But I think like going forward, like about the election. Uh, I mean, I know California. Before I forget, uh, voted for a mail-in ballot voting ballot law so basically california like we're we, we got a mail in our ballots it's not going to be we're not going to be physically voting which i think that's the right idea for public health reasons well i don't know what other states are going to do but i know for california that that's pretty that seems to be this yeah pretty much well 
I mean, one thing I will say is that, you know, in Kentucky, a lot of people didn't get mail-in ballots. So <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, mail-in, I, mail-in ballots may be a way the way to go. But it is also rife with possibilities for irregularities. I mean, oh, this is yeah. not this is not this is not mm-hmm. a system of free and fair elections. I'm sorry. No. It's just it no, just isn't. It's, no, it's not. And speaking of that, like, I mean, my other thought I was thinking is like, you know, when it comes to Biden versus Trump, because obviously, like, uh, regardless of who wins, like the, the fundamental realities are going to remain the same. It, it just with with different sort of massaging, I guess you could say, or like sort of the, the super the superficialities will be different. But I think like one thing to pay attention to is who the ruling class coalesces around. And I think like I it seems like looking at it from that perspective, the ruling class might have more confidence in Biden. Not because they like Biden, but because Trump is just a colossal fuck up, even for their own interest, yeah. that they might go for someone like Biden just to have yeah, some sense get of the stability. Empire back in, on track and all that stuff. Right. So they can further enact the other agendas they have for the long term. And I think, um, um, you know, when it comes to these protests, you know, I was reading these articles about, like, you know, more and more white people joining the protests, which. I don't think that's a bad thing, but one thing one of the articles pointed out is that like one of the factors for large numbers of white people to join the protests is opposition to Donald Trump. So that makes me think is, okay, um, what happens if a Democrat is in office? Would they still be in these protests for the long haul? Because obviously the reality of police violence against black people, that that is a bipartisan affair. Similar to the reality of Israel's oppression and colonization and apartheid of Palestinians, that is a bipartisan affair. So is endless war. A lot of these, a lot of these problems we are talking about are largely bipartisan. But, uh, you know, in the eyes of, of, of the mainstream, it seems like, oh, the most evil shit is done by Republicans. So therefore, you know, uh, the argument is like vote for a Democrat and like, you know, you're yeah. going to get quote unquote the lesser two evils. Um, so uh yeah i i i hope to see i hope that this ferment that's been built up after the george floyd protests continue even if biden gets in office but that that remains to be seen we don't have a crystal ball but i will encourage you guys before we sign off to check out our episode on movement for a people's party uh because that definitely relates to what we're talking about when it comes to electoral politics and the need to have an actual people's party because both these parties are not people's parties so um yeah i think i think some shit libs have found the lenin quote about communists you know him saying communists should participate in bourgeois elections but what they're leaving out is he is lenin says communists should participate in bourgeois elections to vote for communist parties so voting for the democrats is not that so don't yeah like if you want to vote for democrats because you like the democratic party and you think it's it's got the right idea i mean that's that's you i'm not going to tell you to do it but i'm also not going to lose sleep over it but i think that i think i think definitely obviously some white people and probably a large number of them you know, especially I think of the, you know, 
late Xer and boomer class and, you know, the more comfortable millennials um, are like just, you know, hopping on the trend train and they get they're bored. They got nothing else to do. There's no sports. No, can't can't travel, you know, can't go to concerts or whatever. But mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, for the younger crowds and for, you know, the working class uh, white, you know, the more downerly mobile white people who, you know, have their own fair share of negative interactions with the police, even if they understand it's not, they don't have it as bad, um, that I think there will be more possibilities for coalitions and, you know, actual ability to build with with those groups of people. And I think definitely, you know, there is a growing realization that, like, the whole system is fucked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not, you can't count on anybody in power to fix it. And the only mm-hmm. way, like, we're going to have a li- livable future for us is if we work together to to make it happen. So I guess that's the hopeful note to close on is, mm-hmm. uh, all, you know, we got each other. And yeah. we have to, we'll have to find a way to make it work because this shit, whatever the fuck's going on up there, it it ain't it ain't happening. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We all we got is each other. Um, I am a member of the industrial workers of the world, so um, you know, consider joining a union or any kind of local activist group. I mean, that's why I talked about uh, some of the activism that's going on in my own local community. So I'm just work I'm working with people uh, in my area to get cops out of school and uh get ethnic studies and um i'm actually pretty inspired because i mean as someone who grew up here my whole life to see you know a younger generation of activists very fired up and caring about these issues and even talking about you know police abolition seriously uh i felt like you know my role like as someone who's been in pittsburgh for a long time like i want to i want to support you know this yeah, support, support the youth i will mm-hmm. say yeah I, th- I think for people our age it's really important to you know uh provide the you know the kind of context and you know political education all that stuff because yeah. i really feel like you know even our generation it's not really i mean it's it's i mean we'll be involved but it's not ne- we're not necessarily going to be the people that really fight fight it out i think that's going to be the next the, the younger kids so yeah we yeah, gotta do we, what we can to help them. Yeah, we have our role. Um, take those roles seriously. So that that's what I'm trying to do, and I'm 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 excited to be working with, um, these young activists and also uh these progressive teachers who are very serious. Um, yeah, about I mean that's that I mean it's just a great campaign just to get the cops out of schools and and yeah in other parts of the Bay Area they've already ended their contracts with having police in schools. So, um, that's something. That should spread throughout the country. And if you're listening to this podcast, and if you don't see a campaign to get cops out of schools, start one. Start like yeah. when it comes to working together, just just start talking to people. Like I mean, it's tough during COVID, but like you know, uh, a Zoom call with like I mean, go, find like you know local city Facebook groups. I mean, like we we have to get yeah. back to like very very basic and, civics one oh one. And, uh, you know, not to be that guy, but people have organized under much worse circumstances. Right. You know, yeah. if you think about think about all the people who have had to fight and, you know, get locked up and get killed and, you know, be exiled just to get to where we are now. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I 
do draw some strength from that. It's something that, you know, I always try to keep in, in my mind, you know, in terms of like whatever we're engaged in or ever how, how hard or hopeless it seems. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So yeah, just, just basic civics 101, just start talking to people in your community, uh, see if there's like local Facebooks, like local community or city Facebook groups you can join. And if you can find like any people who are sympathetic with these sorts of issues, particularly when it comes to black lives matter or the economy or anything that's related, um, to start talking to people, I, I would definitely, I would definitely suggest like joining a group like IWW or like, I mean, even DSA. I mean, I have Mm -hmm. my own slight, disagreements they're not 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 to throw them like i mean i slight disagreements but but like look the dsa is there there are a lot of to, to dsa's credit i know a lot of people in dsa who who do some dope work but use dsa to build community um whatever you can just just you know um there's socialist alternative uh uh there's there's yeah. there's other great groups there's um i mean this is bay area but anti police terror project they do a lot of great work but try to find like-minded people in your area especially with the kind of energy that's going on if you've been to a black lives matter protest like follow up with people see you know start building relationships and see what kind of um actions and campaigns you can do um and like i said if you're in california bill ab331 that's to get um ethnic studies in uh make it a high school graduate requirement so yeah that's where we got to start stuff like that um and that that's that's all i gotta say uh do you have anything else to say peter uh no uh you know stay dangerous Mm -hmm. keep the faith and take care of each other peace yeah